Welcome to Hillcrest Chapel Audio. We hope today's message will help you grow. Um, we are glad to have all of you at Hillcrest this morning. This is an outstanding church. If you have not been here, this uh, is a church that is on the move all over this community. It was funny, I was thinking totally off script too, that often people get confused of thinking a Sunday morning is being putting on church. Uh, friends, nope, this is our celebration. We are doing church together all week together. We are the church. Uh, and so if you are finding your way around here, don't let Sunday morning be the only thing you are doing. This is just the resultant celebration of a bunch of great stuff that's happening around here all the time. But if you are checking us out, and this is one of your first Sundays with us, we just want to say thank you. We're glad you're here. Uh, any of us would love to meet you. Um, also, I know a few folks have said it already, but I did want to say happy Father's Day to all you dads out there, to my dad uh, sitting right there who has been an outstanding example of what fatherhood looks like. It looks like honesty and repentance and sticking with it and perseverance, and I'm exceedingly grateful um, and to all you dads, the way you represent God, you know, we've said that at Mother's Day. It takes moms and dads to show what our Father God looks like or what God looks like, who is really neither father nor mother, right? But something about all of that, the act of mothering and fathering uh, displays who he is. So dads, as you do that, as you display who the Father is, thank you for the ways that you contribute to this community, uh, the way you father the whole community. Uh, as well. And grads, honestly, too. I know that uh, yesterday was Western Washington's commencement, and all the other colleges and universities are wrapping up around us, already seeing uh, college students home, too. All of you are very proud of you for the work that you are doing, the way you represent this community. Uh, for those of you who are done, and God is taking you off to somewhere else in the world, hear us say, we will miss you. Uh, one of the hard, hard parts about pastoring a community next door to a university is that we have to be okay in our hearts sending people away all the time. And so we send you out with a blessing. We want you to know that Hillcrest is always your home. So wherever or far-flung corner of the earth you end up on, always come back. Uh, whenever you're in town, you've got a home here, and we are proud of you. So to the dads and the grads, again, great weekend. Uh, glad to have you here. Um, we are finally, and I'm just saying finally, it seems like it's been a while, wrapping up uh, this Creed series, unpacking and exploring the Apostles' Creed. Tim already said it to you, the most concise and consistent expression of what Christians have believed for 2,000 years. Christians have been able to agree uh, to this very concise statement of faith. And for eight weeks, we've been kind of going through phrase by phrase and unpacking the goodness that lives uh, in each one of those phrases. And if you don't have one of these bookmarks, you can kind of grab one out of one of the seat pockets in front of you. Uh, we've been handing them out for a couple of months. Uh, and we've only been doing it for eight weeks, but we broke it into a couple of pieces. And so now we're really uh, getting in there. And like I said, each time we reach a phrase, I, I hope you've seen, and we've tried to say this throughout, its brevity does not reveal a lack of sophistication. Right? Its brevity reveals concise precision. It, it is precisely because they took a bunch of information and condensed it down that you can unpack each word. Uh, trust me, they weren't like, eh, whatever, put anything in there. <laughs> it was uh, really thoughtful about each one of these words. Each phrase, each word unpacks a lifetime of study. As you memorize it and as our kids memorize it and our high schools memorize it and college memorize store it. It is a warehouse, a storehouse of information that you will never exhaust. 
uh, in these phrases you will find the truth about who God is and really, I guess, sort of, sort of uh, astounding. You can read over it quickly, but if you will stop and look and you'll really look at it, you will find it is profoundly, it's laden, it's pregnant, it is full of meaning at each turn and every phrase. Well, in the past uh, few weeks, what we've done is we've kind of been in the top end of the Apostles' Creed, establishing the, the who's, the what's, uh, God the Father, God Jesus Christ the Son, God the Holy Spirit, uh, and what they have accomplished. And I told you the middle section belongs to Jesus because he is our primary revelation. We don't get to say really much about the Father nor the Holy Spirit without the revelation of the Son. So he holds the real estate uh, on the Apostles' Creed, and it's appropriate that he does so. And they're all co-equally important, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But we've been getting these foundational truths of the creed locked down so that we can start getting to what I call the results and promises of the creed. Now, I think the Holy Spirit gets a little bit of short shrift. You know, the Father gets the top, Jesus gets the whole middle, and I believe in the Holy Spirit gets the first line of the last block. Uh, but he's part of that triune Godhead, and we're not, it's, it's like a tickle of the results and promises because it's the Holy Spirit yes, I said tickle, that begins to kind of like bring the promises and results to fruition. So if it is true that God the Father is who he says, it is true that Jesus Christ did what he said, and it is true that the Holy Spirit comes to unpack that, then, if then, we may begin to say these things. And the first really great thing we got to say is we believe in the Holy Christian Church and how much fun is that holy and Christian and uh, th- this expression of who we are, we are the church and not the place. And we stretch across most of the nations of the earth and we cross every socioeconomic boundary. We are the beautiful mess uh, that Dan Persley so uh, well described uh, last week. That's, an, that's a result, right? Because those things are true, we get to be the church and we get to say those are true. It's a result, it's a promise. Um, and then come these next four words. Uh, and Holy Christian Church is on there. Then the communion of saints is part of that. And then the next four words are the forgiveness of sins. And I, by literary construction, they would, you know, if you were saying them independently, you would begin each one with I believe in, right? You can take each one out. So by literary construction, it really is I believe in the forgiveness of sins. And you could easily make that we believe in the forgiveness of sins. This is both an individual and corporate statement of what is true. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. Um, two weeks ago, do you remember Tim played with the six-word memoir movement, uh, which is really fun. And by the way, I saw lots of people went online and wrote a six-word memoir. If you're not connected to us through social media, a lot of stuff happens in our houses, in our neighborhoods, conversations afterwards, and some of it happens there. Get connected. People posted some great six-word memoirs. But in a six-word memoir, in six words, you kind of have to state what your life is about. And Tim suggested, I believe in the Holy Spirit. So that's pretty. That's pretty darn good six-word memoir, uh, because like I said, each word is pregnant, right? It's just think about what you getting to say, the Holy Spirit is inside of you, all that that means, and properly considered, I think it becomes a thrill on the tongue, uh, unless you just breeze over it. But if you will think about what you have said in that moment, it becomes a profound statement. Well, if that is so, if I believe in the Holy Spirit is a good six-word memoir, then I want to suggest to you today that the next seven words, I believe in the forgiveness of sins, are a fearsome, 
and wonderful exclamation point on a six-word memoir. They are one-word grander. Uh, it is an amazing and extraordinary, really an unimaginable thing to say, I believe we believe in the forgiveness of sins. It is arguably both the objective and central message of the creed. I, I really want to say everything about Father, Son, Holy Spirit and being the church all leads to this moment to say we believe in the forgiveness of sins. Everything that comes after that flows out of that. We believe in the forgiveness of sins. It's like the pinnacle of a mountain. Now, like I said, it's all co-equal, but we believe in the forgiveness of sins tells us what the Father was up to, right? Why did he create? Did he know it would be broken? What was he going to do about that? What was his motive? Why, what was he doing? He made one that he loved that he intended to redeem. Relationship has always been his plan. We believe in the forgiveness of sins. It tells us about almost everything about the Son. His character, his motives, um, how he loves, why he created, what he does about it. I believe in the forgiveness of sins is the, like, other than glorifying the Father, the outcome of his work. What hath he accomplished but the forgiveness of sins? His motive, his plan, our message is tied up in these seven words. We believe in the forgiveness of sins. I, I'd even say this is what the Holy Spirit has come to do. To cement in your heart the truth of those seven words. <laughs> like we say, I believe in the forgiveness of sins, unless that is applied by the work of the Holy Spirit in your life to some sort of fruition, it's, it is not good news. Right? It, the Holy Spirit comes, the Bible says, like a seal upon your soul of that truth. An Erebon, like a deposit. God puts a deposit on your soul. That's mine. I'll come back and get it. Uh, the Holy Spirit is a seal upon your heart and the work of the holy spirit is to unpack the foundational reality that you have been forgiven for your sins what is his job if it is not to convict correct to guide and to bring us in the truth of jesus christ the holy spirit comes along to work in the basement and rooftops of your life to apply the statement i believe in the forgiveness of sins to bring it to fruition to bring it to application <laughs> To have any joy of it comes along the Holy Spirit to take that phrase and bring it to life. Um, to loose our lips with the good news that we believe in the forgiveness of sins. What is our message? Jesus came, died on the cross, was resurrected. Why, friend? Because we believe in the forgiveness of sins. We believe that he came to bring, that I have got good news for you, the Bible says. God is not counting people's sins against them, but he has provided a way of grace for any human being who will confess with their mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. A free gift with no price to pay other than, you know, your whole life. No religious obligation, just freedom and grace freely given for the gift of alignment with God. We, we believe in the forgiveness of sins. But I started to think how easy it is to repeat that phrase and for it to feel sort of benign. It's almost like a well-wish. It's a nice thing to say. We believe, it. that sounds almost gentlemanly. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. I forgive you, you forgive me. Uh, it's socially acceptable to say, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. But I think, like every other phrase of this creed, if we'll take a moment to think about it and unpack it, to say, I believe in the forgiveness of sins provides us an easy opportunity to see how strikingly controversial that phrase is. Because it is predicated, it is built on a few ideas which our society does not like. 
isn't saying our society a pleasant excuse that we do not like. It is predicated on a few ideas we do not like. Namely, that there is objectively sin and it is serious. Uh, And that we need to be forgiven for it. And not just by each other, but by God. That we are built, that the universe is created, that it is constructed morally, and that we understand it is constructed morally, we understand we have infracted its morality, and that we are guilty for it. The great anthropological mystery of the entire creation is wherever you go, people understand shame and guilt. Not because it was socially constructed, but because it is true. Because we are wired, we are hardwired like a bird to fly and bees to make honey to understand who God is and what sin is. And to understand not just, again, it's pretty nice to say to each other, I forgive you. Mm, I forgive you too. You have hurt me. I forgive you. That's meaningful. But to say that sin is objective and it does more than hurt each other or our social construct or our agreement, it hurts us and it hurts our relationship with God, that everyone objectively sins against self, neighbor, creation, and underscore God. I'm going to read for you Psalm 51, which I think does a wonderful job of capturing uh, this, and we're going to pick up a couple, uh, this observation. (laughs) We would like it so much if sin were just something that we had come up with, because then we could dismiss it. Like, then we could get away with it. If sin, if the sense of guilt and shame is social construct, then as long as you don't get caught, you won't feel guilty for it. Don't don't you wish it were that simple? Oh, I could just, I'm not busted for it. Consequently, I don't feel bad about it. We, We are wired to understand this or to shut it down in such a way as to be seared and no longer recognize it. Psalm 51, David, who is the signal king of the Old Testament, reflection of Jesus Christ, one of God's favorite, was also a profound and miserable sinner, aware of the reality of sin. And he got busted for having a really grim affair. He could have had any woman he wanted. He just chose the one he couldn't have, men. And after it didn't work out, he cowardly killed her faithful husband. And then he got busted for it in public. And then he wrote a song, a psalm, singing about it. Literally, he wrote a song to be sung in church. Which one of you wants to do that? I got busted for my sin. Here's what it looks like. Let's write a song. You guys can sing about it. Because he sees the profundity of the problem and the goodness of the answer. I want you to see this in Psalm 51. He says, knowing what it is, again, he read in church, he says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, I, just, I, I, could, I could park on any of these. Blot out my transgression. Only by your love, but my transgression is real. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know it. I can't ignore it. I can't run away from it. I can't counsel out of it. I can't play a really fun song that makes me forget it. I know my transgression. My sin is before me. There's other parts of the Psalms that say, and and so the longer I kept the sin inside of me, the more my bones melted like wax. The more life was grief to me. The more air, which was once crisp and beautiful, was like poison in my lungs because shame and guilt overwhelmed me. 
And that's why he says, against you and only you, Lord, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I have been sinful since my birth, sinful from the t- sinful since the time my mother conceived me. Now this goes on to s- declare the goodness of God and forgiving him. But look, he knows he sinned against Bathsheba. He knows he sinned against his family. He knows he sinned against the child. He knows he sinned against his nation. He knows he sinned against his people. But he says, what gets me? It's that I sinned against you. I cannot escape. I killed the husband that might be mad at me, but I cannot escape that I have wronged you and my soul is not made right until I am made right with my creator. So we tend to think of sin as this interpersonal thing that we have to solve. And it, it, it is interpersonal environmental. That must be solved. But at its root, it is personal and God-oriented. Do you know, the first thing sin breaks is you, <laughs> me. <laughs> like, it, it wrecks life to be embedded in sin. We are not made for it and it not for us. The first loss is here. The secondary loss is that it breaks our union, our alignment with God. I've got, it's sort of a good news, bad news thing. We were made for a singular purpose that has nothing to do with your career, your success level, your beauty, your popularity, how good you are at sports. All of those go by the wayside. Every human being was made for this singular purpose, to enjoy God and be enjoyed by him. That's what you exist to do. And in other words, if you are not enjoying those things, everything else will find itself vapid. If you are enjoying that thing, then you get to take joy out of almost every area of life. But one must be solved before the other. And it must be dealt with. That is why there cannot be private sin. This is why God cares what you do in secret in just your mind. Because people think, well, if I just do it in my mind, if I'm fantasizing about this in my mind, nobody gets hurt. Yes, you get hurt. And it is an unholy rejection of the God who made you and the abandonment of the good thing that he gave you. It hurts you and it hurts him. I've actually heard people say, well, if I look at pornography, that's a victimless crime. Well, that's just dumb. That's literally our physical victims. Like that's a victim right here on earth. You're giving money to the kingdom of Satan himself. You're breaking your own heart. You're breaking your union with the God. It's an unholy rejection of God. But at its core, it matters. And I want to hear me, want you to hear me say, because we are meant to be aligned. It's like a good gift. He says, I wanted to make you aligned to me. I've made you to be free, not to do whatever you want, free to be aligned with me. It's the greatest freedom you will know. Alignment with me is joy of life. I've made you free to be aligned. And yet, my dear children, I know you. I know what's broken your heart. And even though I've given you the freedom to be aligned, you choose yourself. Even though I've given you freedom to be with me, you always go back. There's something fundamentally, grotesquely, and I'm saying those words, and I'm not being politically correct this morning, broken inside of us, the kind of garbage we do not tell each other in public, but the really hateful trash that lives in the heart of every observant human being. And Paul wants to nail that in the beginning of the book of Romans. He especially wants to nail it with Jews who are thinking, Paul, it's a good thing you wrote that letter to the Gentiles, right? And corrected them. You know, not us, but them. And so he's going to that. Well, I feel like I'm right before God. And listen to his answer. And Paul's not the kind for pulling punches. Here's what he has to say. And I won't read the whole thing, but let me pick it up in verse 20. 
answer the question, but aren't some guiltless? Maybe they don't know what's going on. Maybe I'm guiltless. Maybe I've been okay. It says, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. All people made, wired, designed. We are made to be with God. This is why you cannot counsel shame away. Me telling you it's okay doesn't make it go away. It has to be dealt with as a reality. It says, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being. Birds and animals and reptiles, let's be honest, are idols, sex and power and popularity. Therefore, God just gave them over to the sinful desires of their heart, the sexual impurities for degrading their bodies. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They worshiped what they made instead of the creator. Picking up verse 28, it says, furthermore, and listen, he doesn't pull any punches, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so then God gave them over to their depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. Let me describe humanity, all of us, everyone. They, it doesn't help if you change this to we. We have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. We are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. We are gossipers, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. We invent ways of doing evil. We disobey our parents. We have no understanding. We have no fidelity. We have no love, no mercy. Although we know God's righteous decree, we do, and we know they deserve death, we not only continue to do those things, but we approve of those who practice them. Paul here describes the real problem of sin. Now, again, I want you to know, I think it's better that God get into the nitty-gritty of sin and offend our sensibilities than leave it at an easy level because if it's just nicety, God forgives you for stealing a pencil in second grade, uh, that is not going to handle any of the real stuff that we are coping with. He needs to be able to handle adultery, murderous thoughts, <laughs> infidelity to your ch- in a way that you don't love your children, abuse. He needs to handle like the real things that live in our lives and in our hearts. There needs to be an adequate answer. And so the individual and corporate problem remains a failure to be honest about sin. And honest at the most tra- transgressed is God himself. For there to be a good news, good answer, the truth has to be dealt with first. Um. Anselm of Canterbury, he's one of my favorite, I love to borrow his phrases, uh, wrote a book called Cur Deus Homo. Why God had to be, why did God have to become a human being? And in answer to the title of his book, in his book he's having a conversation with another person named Bozo. That's the person's real name. He's, uh, uh, why did God have to become man? And Anselm answered, because if we are to be saved from the real consequences of sin then it must be the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, had to become incarnate, take on human flesh, and take our place. This, this amazing thing had to happen. And then Bozo asks, why such an extravagant thing? Why this, why this huge answer for this problem? And Ansem answers him, and I'll, I'll murder the Latin here, but nondum considerasti quanti pandera sit peccatum. 
Have you really yet considered what the weight of sin is? What the loss is? You can't celebrate the goodness of the answer, the extravagance of the answer, until you have fully comprehended and wrestled with the weight of sin, the actuality of the loss. Um, I, I like to say it to you this way. You don't really experience the joy of salvation until you experience the grief of your sin. And I mean that for Christians as well, who wonder, I see, I, I don't experience God. I have no intimacy with him. I don't, I don't know God. I don't see fruit in my life. It, be, it could be because you have whispered an easy, I believe, in the forgiveness of sins and not yet dealt with the like profound reality of your sin, my sin, our infraction against ourselves, against others, against creation, and against God. And you don't experience the true joy, God saved me, God forgive me, until you really handle the issue I don't know about you, in my own, uh, when I was saved, I think I got saved as a little kid, but then I was serving as an airman in Saudi Arabia. I came home on a break, and God dramatically re-entered my life. And that followed for me like this season of a voracious appetite for information. I don't know if any new Christians have had that, but I went from never wanting to read the Bible to like, that's all I could do. Uh, I don't know what makes people read Jonathan Edwards, but it was that season in my life, you know, Calvin and Edwards. I just wanted info. Uh, and I, I thought that was a really important season of my life, but it was followed by a much more important season of my life. I came home, I got out of the military, I had this intellectual ascent, and one day God just dumped on me the weight of my sin. It was an overwhelming, I, I don't even know how I got home. All I know, I laid on the floor and cried for multiple hours, and the weight God let me just soak in the grief of my infraction. I owned it. I, I was just crushed momentarily by the weight of my sin, and then like a silver thread, just white hot as lava, did he weave through that grief, I forgive you. I see the actual problem. I see it, and I totally, absolutely, and easily cover it. I totally forget you, and I never want you to forget. By the way, I thought, oh, now I'll get to forget the grief of my sin. People are always like, oh, you made it through that. I hope you forget. Never forget. <laughs> Do not forget the weight of your sin. In the weight of your sin, will you celebrate the weight of glory, the celebration of your forgiveness, the strength of the good news. The good news is not finding out you needed forgiveness, is that you needed it and you need it right now and you will need it tomorrow. And in between, you will compound your need for it. The good news is I'm, I, I am with you with the real deal. You don't have to pretend we can look at your sin face to face and I have provided a way. There is real joy so that when I say I can't, he says I can. When I say I see my sin and now I can't carry it, he says I can, give it to me. And he carries it to the cross. We, we believe in the forgiveness of sin. Thanks be to God, we believe in the forgiveness of sin. And so I think that some of you might, I don't know if some are like, so what? But some maybe be skeptics, or some think I've pushed too hard, or some of maybe you're kind of crossing the arms of your heart, or maybe you're literally crossing your arms, and, and uh, you think maybe sin's a thing like we use, like a tool, like a weapon, like a lever bar. You know what sin is? It is not something we made up. It is a fundamental objective truth. God and our infraction is something that's actually materially true. Now, I think, again, you might think, oh, but I, I don't know if I believe that. I'm, I'm going to say, and I, I don't have on time to pack it, 
human beings know we're broken. I said before, you can't counsel yourself. You should go into counseling, but counseling won't be the answer. Counseling in Christ will be the answer. Um, it is a material reality. It's a fact. Uh, some of you may wonder why I have a giant rock sitting on stage. Charlie certainly was wondering when I asked him to bring it here. And I helped him. <laughs> we guessed it was four or 500 pounds. Others have told us now it's more like six or 700 pounds. Why put that rock there? Why go through the trouble? I like it because it is a material reality. It's a fact. It's a data point. Nothing about my thoughts about it change whether or not it is there. I could ignore it and it would continue to exist. I could decide I don't believe it's true and there it would be. It's data. It's a material. We tend to treat sin and God in a relationship like a religious idea when I want to suggest to you it's data. It's a da- Jesus and our sin is a point of data, material reality that must be dealt with. It's got to be handled. Ignoring it is a decision. It's a decision to say no. And so that these realities are presented for us like a 700-pound rock at the foot of your life. And Jesus says that the Bible calls him the rock of our salvation. You like that? Sometimes it's the rock that will break you is what it says. The rock of our salvation. It says people will do one of two things with this rock. They will own their sin, own the redemption, receive the gift, and in that way put their feet upon the rock. Storms will come, challenges, guilt, shame, all those, but their feet are founded on the rock. Nothing will move them. They are on the rock. But if they will not be on the rock, then they will trip over it, fall, and it says the rock will crush them. If we go to Peter, he says, and Peter should have been well aware of this given his own sin, 2, 7 through 8, he says, Now to you who believe, the stone will be precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected will become for you a cornerstone, a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And I wish this morning that I could take time with you, much more time, to unpack how we understand the reality of sin and God and the, and the breadth and glory of forgiveness and the results that we have in our life. But that is a different message. Today I wanted to underscore for you how weighty and important it is to say, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. We believe our message is the forgiveness of sins. And if you want to unpack it a little this week, especially if you're relatively new to Christianity, I'm going to send you to a complicated book. It's called the Book of Romans. You can look it up in the table of contents in the beginning. Read the first 10 chapters of the Book of Romans. Paul who I read a little bit of, is making this argument for you. And if it feels a little complex for you, I recommend you Google something called the Roman Road. Google it, and you're going to find pictures of it, steps, and it is a short outline of the book of Romans. Or, and you can take out your phone right now if you want to, uh, you can take a picture of this slide that I made, and we'll post it on our website too. Here I have built the argument of Romans 1 through 10 as a chiasm, a mountain point. Chiasm is when you drive to the central point of something. And take some time to read these verses and unpack God's argument and Paul's argument for who we are. But those verses are going to take you to a fairly simple idea. Everyone is guilty and we all know it. But God has made an outstanding way for us precisely when we weren't looking for him and even rebelling. And then Romans 10, 9 says, so here's the truth. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord... And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. The results of which going down the other side are an absolute assurance of peace of God, a life without condemnation, why the Holy Spirit develops in us the presence and purposes of God, all inside the inviolable safety of the love of Jesus, a powerful, beautiful, true summary of the gospel. And so here's how we're going to end. The worship team is going to make their way back up here. As they do, um, I'm going to pray in just a moment, and they're not going to begin right away. We're going to give you just a moment of silence, the gift of silence. And I don't want to, you know, harp on an emotional string or twist your arm. I just want to give you some time to consider where you are at in relationship to this objective truth with the nitty-gritty facts of sin. Sin is bad news by itself. I got better news. There's an answer. There's an answer not just between you and God, but there's an answer for your soul, for your life, for fruitfulness, for joy. We're meant for alignment. But first you have to deal with the rock. You have to deal with the truth. And so in this time, I just want to give you a moment. If you think, hey, I've never dealt with the truth, uh, take a moment to think about that. You're invited today to begin to follow Jesus, who is the hope, and join a community who's figuring it out every day together. Maybe you're a Christian here who just needs to confess. You know, every great thing that's ever happened in the church has started with confession. Power from confession to Jesus and to one another to get real about what is real. And uh, maybe you need to start with some confession. Uh, And maybe you just need some time in your chair to pray. Maybe you want to come up in here and pray. We'll be praying up here with you as well. Uh, But after a moment of silence, they're going to begin to lead us in a song. And I just want you to take a moment to see, where am I? In relationship to the good news, because I got good news. Are you ready? We believe in the forgiveness of sins, real sin. Thanks be to God, and amen. Thanks for connecting with Hillcrest Chapel. For more info on this and other sermons, go online to hillcrestchapel.com or visit us at 1400 Larrabee Ave in Bellingham, Washington any Sunday morning, 9 or 11 a.m.